0: If you were uh, to come to our house and eat supper with us, or if you were to help put our girls down to bed, you would notice that something's beginning to evolve in our household. And that is our twin, almost four-year-olds, are beginning to learn how to pray. And it is the cutest, I mean, I don't like to brag on my kids that much, uh, but this is one of the coolest things as a parent I've gotten to see. It's really kind of funny, because they don't really know what they're doing yet. Uh, like, like we'll, we'll sit down before dinner, and, and, and they'll just jump in with, like, no, like, dear God stuff or any of that, They're just like, thank you for the food, thank you for, and, it, and it's just really, really cute. In fact, the other night, uh, we, were, we were praying before bed, and one of the girls, I can't remember which one it was, it was like, you know, they said, thank, they said, dear God, this is before bed, dear God, thank you for this food, Hey, wait a minute, we're not about to eat. I said, no, we're not about to eat, but that's okay, you know. One of the things that stands out the most is that, uh, for me, even as their dad, who's a pastor, is the way they always pray for what's closest to their hearts. They pray for their birthday, which is several months away. They pray for their beach trip that they're going to take with their cousins this summer. They tell God what they went to gymnastics and they ate pink pink pancakes for breakfast. Whatever is closest on their heart, they talk to God about. It's really beautiful. And what does any of this have to do with what we're going to look at tonight here in John 17? This. Y'all, Jesus is soon to be betrayed. He is literally hours away from walking out from praying and His boys are about to sell Him out. They're about to turn him in to the authorities. He's going to be arrested, and by by the next morning, he's a dead man. These are the very final hours of Jesus' life. And what about, if if that was true for you, what if you knew that, that tomorrow morning you were going to die? What would you be praying for? If you're a prayer, what would be on your heart? What would you be praying for? Well, what's really, really interesting is that tonight John gives us this intimate look into the very heart of Jesus as to what he's praying for. We get a window into what is near and dear to Jesus' heart tonight. And in case you didn't catch it, the thing that he loves most comes across his lips to his Father. And what is it? It's you and me. It's you and me he is praying for us for many centuries now as I've said we said that this is the high priestly prayer that Jesus goes before the father and that he is now praying to God for us yes even you and me and you might think that in a prayer like this Jesus would pray for things like this that they would be bold in their witness for truth that Jesus would pray that they would get their theology right that Jesus would pray something like, you know what? You ought to care for the poor. Or that, that you know what? You, you have to be the most accepting and tolerant of people. But Jesus prays for none of that. Believe it or not, Jesus prays, y'all, for their unity. Their unity. What? Why? Why among all the things that Jesus could have possibly prayed for, would that be the thing? Well, I want to suggest to you tonight, maybe, just maybe, it is something that is near and dear to his very heart as well. Maybe it's just that important. And so tonight, we're going to look at what Jesus prays for on our behalf. And we're going to look at what it is. We're going to look at how we go about getting it. And then lastly, how once we get it, do we go about living it out? So, in short, here it is. What unity is. Secondly, how we get unity. And then thirdly, how do we live out unity itself. What unity is? Let's take a look. Look at your first verses there in verses 20. Well, not your first verses, but firstly. Look at uh, verses 20 to 23. When Jesus prays, y'all, here in chapter 17, He's praying for several things. The first part, which we'll look at in a minute, focuses on this glory of God. It's that first paragraph there, verses 1 through 5. And then in a section that we're not going to look at, he prays for his immediate group of disciples, that immediate band of, of 11 now. He's praying for them. He's praying that they would be uh, that they would be set apart, that they would be able to do the work of ministry that he has set them up for. And then lastly, in this last little bit, Jesus is praying for those. You'll see it there in verse 20. He says, I do not ask for these only, referring to the 11, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. Now, who are they? That is the witness. That is the history of Christianity. That is the history of the church from those 11 apostles, James and John and Matthew and Peter and Thomas and Bartholomew. It is everybody from them all the way to you and me. And it will be a prayer that stands, that goes on forever to the entirety of the church. Jesus here is praying for us. I want you to see that tonight. He's praying for us. But what it is that He is praying for, is, you'll see in verse 20 there, it says that He prays that they would be one, just as the Father and the Son are one. In other words, y'all, Jesus is praying for His followers, you and me, to be united, to be unified, But I think this raises a question, doesn't it? It raises the question, well, unified, what? Around what? In what sense are we to be unified? Are we literally supposed to become like one person or somehow? I mean, think about it. When I say the word unity, it, it begs definition, doesn't it? Like, what do you mean one? Well, Jesus tells us. Jesus tells us that we would be one. He is not praying for a unity of structure even. He is not even praying that we would be one in everything that we believe, believe it or not. But Jesus is praying that we would be one with that original band of eleven such that our witness, our testimony, would be the same as those were back in the first century. He's not only praying for that, but He's praying that our mission would be the same. If, you ever, if you've listened to anything we've said about the Gospel of John, we said this, that Jesus came on mission. And His mission, y'all, was to make the Father known was to reveal the Father's heart to the lost world. And Jesus is here praying as well for you and for me that we would be united as well in that very same mission. It's in that sense that Christ is praying that we would be unified. In other words, the Father and the Son are one in their mission to love sinners and make the Father known. And it is in that sense that we are to be unified. We are to share a common mission, a common purpose, and a common goal. Now listen, there is much talk today, and there has been for well over a century and a half, that Christians just need to quote, unify. That we just need to quote, be one. But you always, always, always have to see that you unify around something Unity always happens around some sort of truth claim that has a definition. And I think the very famous Brick Tamlin helps us with this. If you've ever seen the movie Anchorman, you know Brick. Here's Brick, right? There's a scene in Anchorman where uh, they the, the news station has just found out that... that uh, God, I can't remember what's her name. What's the girl's name? Uh, Christina Applegate. Veronica Apples. Apple. Corningstone. Thank you. Yes, thank you, Brennan. She is about to join the staff and they're furious at the producer of this news show. And all four of the newsmen, very chauvinistic, you know, bit, and they're all in there and they're yelling, they're furious that he is allowing this woman to come work for them. And it's Brick's turn to yell. And he gets up there, he slams his hands on his desk, played by Steve Carell. He hands it, he says, he says what? He says, I don't know what we're yelling about. (laughs) And it's humorous, right? Because why? Because it's this picture of being unified, but he has no idea what he's unified about. And I think that that's what happens with a lot of us in the Christian world. It's like, let's all be together. And you're just like, yeah! What are we unified about? You know what I mean? It's like nobody understands that what we're trying to say is is that when Christ is talking about being one, He's talking about us to have a common mission, a common purpose, together. Jesus is not saying just be unified for unity's sake. No, that's impossible. Real unity must happen around something. But there's something else you have to see. We're also to be unified in how we love one another and how we love one another. As the Father has loved the Son and vice versa, so we too are to love one another in this way. In other words, it is both unity around truth getting expressed in love to one another. It's unity and truth and love together. After all, you may remember when John said this in John chapter 13, by this, how we love one another, right? People will know that you are my disciples if you have loved for one another. Now, why does this matter? What's the, what's the so what here? We well, all for centuries, for centuries, Christians have confessed the importance of this very thing. You may have grown up in a church that confessed what's been called the Nicene Creed. If some of you are familiar with it, you might remember this line in there when it states this. The Nicene Creed was written around 325 A.D., so it's been around for literally hundreds of years. And it says this, that we believe, if you are a Christian, you would affirm that we believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. Now there's some big words in there that need definition. But the picture is this, that there are there is unity there. And the word, by the way, the word Catholic there means universal or whole. It's talking about the big picture of things. In other words, Jesus is saying this. There is one body. There's not two. There is one people of God. Not two, not three, not four. There is one body that Christ has died for. It is called His church. That is His bride. He did not spill His blood for any other than for his very own. And that is what he wants us to see. That we ought to be unified around this common posture of love for one another, around the central mission and truth. Why does this matter? Here it is, for starters. I think it's a call for repentance. It's a call for repentance. Because if you're anything like me, it is so much easier to draw the line in the sand and say, you're you're that and I'm this. And because you're that and I'm this, though we may share a mutual love and a common mission or purpose, I would rather pull away and be distinct from and keep separate from you because of that. And God comes to me and He says, you must learn a better way, Ryan. You must grow in repentance in this way. And what about you? You see, what about you? If you are a Christian today, where do you find it easier to to pull away and to differ from people who you actually, if you are a Christian and you are closer with the Christian in the Sudan than you are with your brother who is not a Christian? You share more in common with the child who is a Christian in Russia than you do your mother if she is not a Christian. That's the organic unity that you have because of what Christ has done for you. It's a profound unity, y'all. And here's what I want you to see, and this is why this matters. I'm taking most of my time on this point. I know it. But it is this, that the world sees the way that we are together or not and therefore draws a very right conclusion about who God is on that basis. Let me say it again because there's a lot in there the watching world looks on, the non-Christian world looks on at the way that Christians either love each other or don't, either the way they're unified or they're not, and they draw conclusions about who God is on that basis. And that's exactly what Jesus is saying here, that the world will know me by the way you all get together. That's profound. Listen to what Francis Schaeffer says in this quote. I'm going to put it up on the screen here. He says this. Come on, there we go. Okay. He says this. He says it's in the midst. It is in the midst of a difference that we have our golden opportunity. When everything is going well, we are all standing around a nice little circle. There's not much to be seen by the world. But when we come to the place where there's a real difference, and we exhibit uncompromised principles. There's that truth component. But at the same time, observable love, then there is something that the world can see, something they can use to judge that these really are Christians and that Jesus has indeed been sent by the Father. When we are failed to be unified, y'all, our mission becomes opposed to Jesus' very mission. And that's sobering. That's sobering. May He grant us the grace to be unified that we, would be, that we would be united together no matter what your background is, that Christ would draw us together. It ought to be the great prayer of our church that we would be one as the Father and the Son are one. That's my first point. Secondly, how then do we get this unity? How then do we get this unity? Let's take a look. I'm looking secondly at these verses from verses 1 to 5. Simply put, Jesus tells us that there is a deeper, more important unity that we must have if we're to live out and experience what he prays for. And we see this in verse 5. He opens his prayer by praying that the Father would glorify him his hour has come. He is soon to die. But Jesus also says in verse 3 that He has given eternal life to all that the Father has given to Him. In other words, the Father has given the Son His own. And the Son has kept them and has given them eternal life. And Jesus says exactly right here what eternal life is. Read it right there in verse 3. That they know you the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. That this is eternal life. Jesus is saying that what it means to have eternal life, y'all, is to know God. That's what's at the heart of what it means to be a Christian. That's what's at the heart of Christian salvation, is knowing who God is and knowing Him. Now, He is not saying eternal life is knowing about God. Why? Well, in an interesting place in James, the book of James, James writes, the demons believe in God. They know of God. They know facts about him and they shudder. But they're not that's that's not eternal they don't have eternal life. And what is this saying to this, y'all? He's saying this. Knowing God and knowing about God are entirely different things. One is eternal life and the other by itself is eternal death. And the point of all of this is that there is no way to be united with others who know God through Jesus if we ourselves have not been united to Him. Think about it like this. Imagine you follow a famous person on Instagram, okay? So you've got their pictures coming up. I don't know, maybe it's Taylor Swift or something like that. Now, um, you see their life sort of unfold before your eyes, right? They go to the beach. They snap a pic. And they and you... and they tell you they love it. So all of a sudden you say, hey, guess what? Yeah, I'm talking to some of y'all back there. Um, that, that you say, they must like the beach, okay? Uh, and then they praise their kids, perhaps. So you know that they're a family man or a family woman. And perhaps they might even post a picture of a Bible or something. And then you infer from that that they must be a Christian or they think something about God. Well, listen, after a year of following them, you may be able to literally write a book about that person. You could write their biography and you have so many facts about them, right? You have tons of data. But here's the question. Have you ever met them? Have you ever spoken a word to them? Do they know your name? The fact of the matter is, is that you can know a ton about someone without knowing them at all. At all. And that ought to sober us, especially those who have a lot of facts and a lot of data about who God is. Because hear hear me very well on this. For some of you, the most dangerous thing for you is actually what you know about God. The most dangerous thing for some of you is what you know about about God. Because it can be deceiving to think, because I know about God, therefore I know Him. And that is a non sequitur that does not follow. It does not follow because you know a lot about somebody that you know them. And Christ is saying here tonight, y'all, that to know God possessing eternal life is not about becoming a moral person. It isn't about being more accepting of others. It isn't about reading your Bible or going to church more or doing more mission trips or going to RUF or doing five other ministries on campus. It is about primarily, do you know God? And the truth expressed here that Jesus is trying to say implicitly is that do you know Him as He has revealed Himself and not on your own terms? Listen, y'all, here's a test. I think I want to give you a an test and I want to give you an encouragement. Here's a test how you can know if you know God. It's a real simple question. Here it is. Does the God you know get to tell you no? Does the God you know get to tell you no? Or is He your Yes, man. Is he your consultant? Is he the one that he can give you a little bit of data here and there and you have the right to sort of be the arbiter and say, thanks for the information, God. I'm going to kind of do things over here. You see, how you know, at least in part, is if you know God. Is he, do you have a God that actually disagrees with you at points? There are points in your life, if you know the living God, he will always, always, always confront you and he will always look at you and say, I'm sorry, no, that is not right. You may not do that. That is not true. Do you have a God like that? If so, you're on the path. You're on the path to knowing the God of the Bible. He always stands over and against us at different points in our lives. But if you have a God that's always telling you yes, I guarantee you, you don't know God. That's the test. Here's the encouragement. To anybody who doesn't know God or wonders if they do know God, can I say something tonight? Tonight you can know Him. That's the wonderful news tonight's the night where you might be able to say for the very first time, I'm on the fringes, I'm tired of playing games, tonight, mark it down, I want to know Him, tell me what I need to do to know God. And if that's you tonight, I just want to say this, you get your butt up here and you talk to me afterwards tonight and we'll have a discussion about that. Because I would, do, I would love nothing more for you tonight to walk out that door saying I crossed from death tonight into life tonight from the hours of 9 o'clock and 10 o'clock on this Wednesday evening. That would be the best moment in your life and you would walk out of that room a changed man or a changed woman. Tonight you may leave here knowing God it is free. You pay nothing. You do not have to bring your best performance. All you need is nothing. All you need is need. So bring it to Him and He will meet it. That is the great promise of the Gospel. You may know God tonight. J.I. Packer once said this, and it's a beautiful quote. He says this, Once you become aware that the main business that you are here for is to know God, most of life's problems fall into place of their own accord. And this is the man who has written the most brilliant book called Knowing God. I encourage you to read it if you've never read it. It's one of my top five books of all time, Knowing God by J.I. Packer. And he is saying, the thing that you were made for, dear one, is for this great purpose. You were made to know God. That is staggering. It is staggering to comprehend that you were made to know the living God. Lastly, Jesus has told us that unity with one another has its roots in a unity with God. We simply can't be connected in this deep way like grapes on a vine without being first united to Christ. But if we are, we have a profound resource to draw on to live as one with one another. And Jesus shows us in this last portion of our prayer, and let's turn our eyes now to taking a look at how we can live out, how we can live out this wonderful unity. He tells us in verse 24 to 26 that Jesus is praying for us, that we would be with him. Look, look right there. Look what he says right there. Jesus on his last night, do you see it there? He says this, Father, verse 24, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am. Have you ever stopped and wondered and thought about that? That Jesus is praying for your very presence the night that He is dying. Can you begin to comprehend that? He longs to be with you and He is praying for you. This is a wonderful truth that ought to fuel our very hearts. He's praying for you. And He wants you, He desires you so much that He is praying that you would be with Him forever. And y'all, the writer of Hebrews tells us that Jesus didn't just do that then back in Gethsemane's garden, right? Back on the night when He was betrayed. He didn't just do it then, but listen to what Hebrews chapter 7 tells us. Listen. Consequently, He, Jesus, is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through Him. Here it is. Since He always lives to make intercession for them. So do you know what Jesus is doing for you right now? He stands before the Father at the Father's right hand and He is praying for you. Jesus is praying for you even now. And this means that for the entirety of your life, I don't matter, I don't care how bad it gets. I don't care what sin you feel has got its fingers wrapped around your throat. I don't care the despair that you may be experiencing right now. I don't care the indifference that you may be suffering right now. Dear friend, know this, that tonight the Son of God stands before the Father interceding for you if you are in Him. Is that not a wonderful truth? Is that not a wonderful thing to to move your soul tonight? Jesus prays for you and for me. We no longer, y'all, because of that, have to defend ourselves because Christ is already doing it for us. We don't have to prove ourselves because Christ has already done that for us. It is this reality, I love this quote, It is this reality that led the Scottish minister, Robert Murray McShane, to say this. Listen to this. I'm going to put it up on the board. He says this If I could hear Christ praying for me in the next room, I would not fear a million enemies. Yet distance makes no difference. He is praying for me. This is what he's doing. And, y'all, here's why this matters. When you begin to see him doing that, it is profoundly powerful. It's a profound resource to know that Jesus, you are buttressed by the prayers of Jesus himself to be able to live unified with other Christians. This is a wonderful, wonderful promise. I want to illustrate it with one story. I know my time is winding down, but we're almost done. It's hard to believe, but on December twenty fourth, 1914, the bullets were firing between the trenches in World War I. On that night, early into Christmas Day, the British forces began to hear the German forces singing Christmas carols. And interestingly, on that Christmas Day, at one particular point along the front, Both forces, the Germans and the British, put down their weapons and, believe it or not, began hanging out with one another. Why? It was Christmas Day. It was Christmas Day. It was a day to stop shooting each other and to celebrate the implications of the coming God. That day, in fact, they actually played soccer with one another. They smoked cigarettes together with one another. They actually lived as friends together with one another on that one day In 1914 there was a literal ceasefire unity was had christian brothers across the trenches came together because of the work that jesus had done for them y'all i hope you can see the point how how could they put down their weapons and not kill because they knew there was one who had already come and died for them Now, of course, don't you all wish that we just left the guns down instead of picking them back up on December the 26th and started shooting at each other? It's is staggering to me. But the point is this. Jesus has loved you. If you are in Him with the love, verse 26, which you have loved me. Jesus is saying this. If you are in me, if you are a Christian tonight, the love that the Father has for the Son and the Son has for the Father, that same love that goes between them, is what you get from God the love that the intra the intra trinitarian love between the father and the son and the holy spirit that's existed for all eternity you have been ushered into that and welcomed into that same great love and delight that is what you presently have tonight dear one and when you begin to see that it provides a powerful powerful motivation to be able to love to be able to love those who are also Christians. Jesus longs for us to see in his death that we have been brought near to God. That his death for us not only brings us into an unlosable fellowship with God, but his death secures us into a family with other believers. This is exactly what the Apostle Paul wrote in Ephesians chapter 2 when he said this, but now in Christ Jesus. You who were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For He Himself, Jesus, is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in His flesh the dividing wall of hostility that He might create in Himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. Like it or not, if you are united to Christ, you are closer, as I said earlier, to a Christian in Russia Than you are your own non-Christian family. This is what union with God through Christ by the Spirit gets you. Next Friday is Good Friday, the day when Christians remember the death of Jesus. After all his years of knowing the intimacy and unity with his Father, in his humanity, Jesus would say something utterly profound as he was dying, breathing his last. You see, this wasn't the last prayer that Jesus prayed. No, there was one that went like this. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And it's very interesting commentators tell us that Jesus does not say, My Father, my Father. Why? Because he was experiencing for the first time the disunity of bearing our sin for us. He was cut off. He was cast out. In other words, in John 17, Jesus is intimately praying for you and I to know the same intimacy that he has with the Father. But the cost of our intimacy with God would mean that He would have, have to forego His. And when you see this, when you see Him doing this for you, you now can begin to give yourself into other believers in the church to live on mission together and to serve your brothers and sisters in Christ in profoundly, profoundly new ways. This is good news for our souls. Amen. Let's pray. Our God, thank You that You love us like this. Boy, do we need to hear this tonight. Thank You, Jesus, that You, even as we pray to You, You're praying for us. You never stop praying for us. This is such wonderful news because, boy, we need it. We we, we fail, we falter, we quit on you, we're so faithless, we're indifferent, and yet you still pray for us. Thank you. Thank you, Lord Jesus. I pray tonight that you would help people see that if they don't know God, that they don't know you, that tonight it would be done with, and tonight they would come to know you. We pray this mightily Holy Spirit... Open the eyes, I pray. Open their eyes. And I ask this all in your name. Amen.